Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As opposed to the customary long introduction uh, that I read before the start of each of these roundtables that takes a look at the week in Washington and the world, we are going to get right into it. Joining us are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with uh, the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of uh, the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure having you uh, on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval warfare uh, coverage. And our coverage of the Air Force Association's Aerospace Warfare Symposium was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. Our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS, and our coverage uh, next week of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show is sponsored by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, again for joining us, Michael. Uh, obviously, uh, a big week. Start us off with uh, the debt talks that are the most uh, controversial, even if you know budget hearings Uh, Some of the administration's policies are all sort of intertwined in Tommy Tuberville's decision to put a hold on more than 180 uh, nominees and and senior military officers, Uh, you know, and and then we also had AUMF uh, on top of that on this uh, sort of as as everybody commemorates uh, and and reflects on 20 years after the Iraq war. Start us off on the debt talks. So unfortunately, we continue to take steps backward on the debt talks. So uh, earlier this week on Tuesday, House Republicans had said that they may not be able to adopt a budget resolution before we hit uh, the end of extraordinary measures on the debt ceiling. However, the next day on Wednesday, Jody Arrington, who chairs the House Budget Committee, said they are making progress on a budget resolution, which he intends to offer, but uh, has no timeline. Uh, But uh, it's striking that now it looks like Arrington and the House Republicans are backing away from the notion that they can balance the budget uh, within 10 years. Uh, something we've talked about uh, in previous podcasts that it's virtually impossible if you don't touch Medicare, Social Security, and want to make the um, Trump tax cuts permanent. So now they're saying the most concerned about what the budget would do uh, in the near term. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the chief economist at Moody's came out saying that the end date for when extraordinary measures would exhaust themselves would be mid-August now instead of June. So if that's true, that does buy them a little time. Uh, so McCarthy you know, says he's preparing to move a party line bill uh, you know, to raise uh, the national debt, uh, what exactly is in the plan and how much of the uh, debt ceiling they may ask to, to raise uh, still remains unresolved. Uh, but there was a letter exchange uh, earlier this week between McCarthy and Biden, which is really, in my opinion, some pointless political theater. Um, first, McCarthy sent a letter to Biden on, on Tuesday where he said to him that, you know, that you and your team have been completely missing in action in any meaningful follow-up, you know, from their discussions. Uh, and then he remains concerned. 
you know, about the Biden administration's extreme position of not negotiating. And, you know, he laid out uh, some broad areas that he felt that they could agree upon to cut spending. Uh, the first is reducing excessive non-defense government spending to pre-inflationary levels and then limiting out your growth. So what that really means is, again, going back to FY22 uh, spending levels, uh, which we talked about previously, and limiting growth to 1% thereafter, that's just a non-starter. I don't see the Democrats you know, agreeing to that. His next point in his letter was reclaiming unspent COVID funds. I think it's a possibility. Democrats have indicated that they might be willing to do that, especially for funds that have expired. Uh, he also wants to strengthen worth requirements um, for those without dependents who can work or receive government benefits. Again, I think that's a non-starter uh, with Democrats. And the last point he made in this letter was, you know, kind of a broad thing about policies uh, to grow our economy and keep Americans safe. Uh, and some of that deals with the permitting uh, reform that Joe Manchin uh, was in favor of. And that may be somewhere they might be able to find some common ground, but nowhere uh, near the numbers that the Republicans uh, would be looking for. Now, Biden responded to his letter uh, on the same day uh, and pretty much you know, said to him, look, I look forward to talking with you about our nation's economic and fiscal health, but uh, for the conversation to be productive, we both need to tell the American people what we're for. So that he looks forward to seeing his right. set of proposals that would be useful for them before they meet. And actually he closed his letter by saying, that it's his hope that the House Republicans can present the American public with your budget plan before the Congress leaves for the Easter recess so we can have in-depth discussion when you return. Well, Congress left for the Easter recess yesterday. And of course, there still is no you know, plan laid out in writing. But to me, the most alarming thing that happened this week on this was you know, Patrick McHenry, who is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee in the House, who's really one of McCarthy's closest confidants as well, said, you know, I don't see how we get there. And this is a marked change from where I've been. I don't even see a path to a debt seeing agreement. Uh, and he referred to this letter exchange as a frank admission that the conversation's at a total standstill. He said, there's no back channel conversations going on. There's no staff conversations going on. And I've never been more pessimistic about where we stand with the debt ceiling. So to me, that's very alarming about where we stand right now. This is uh, playing out against multiple other very contentious uh, backdrops. Uh, Tommy Tuberville's move uh, protesting uh, the uh, administration's uh, uh, decision to help military members in states where abortion services are outlawed uh, to uh, move them to places where it is uh, if uh, they need uh, that kind of care. Walk us through the impact of that, because, um, you know, this is not an unprecedented thing. Folks from both parties have put these sorts of blanket holds on folks. But generally, when you put it against military members uh, and senior military leaders, that's particularly disruptive, uh, given that everybody really does cycle from one job to another and not moving on this uh, can really have detrimental uh, impacts. Walk us through what Tumberville is trying to achieve and how this plays into the, the, the broader backdrop. Well, you're, you're exactly right. So uh, as of today, it appears that Senator Tupperville is single-handedly blocking the promotion of well over 160 uh, military commanders. And these are folks that are assigned to really important jurisdictions in the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East, uh, and NATO, because he is trying to compel the Pentagon to reverse the policy you just referenced on you know, providing service members increased access to abortion, for especially for members who are stationed in places where abortion is illegal. Um, and, you know, it's something that's also making um, some Republicans uncomfortable uh, as well. I mean, uh, Senator Deb Fisher, who is a senior Republican on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, you know, came out and said publicly, this is not you know, a tactic that I would use. Um, now, uh, Senator, uh, Secretary Austin 
testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee, and this came up, and you know, and he mentioned how harmful this delay is uh, to our national security, and that not approving the recommendations for promotions actually creates a ripple effect through the force that makes us far less ready uh, than when when we need to be. Uh, but you know, Tupperville doubled down earlier this week and said, "I'll stay here until hell freezes over, and I'm not going to be intimidated by a campaign of what he calls selective outrage." So. Uh, we still have a ways to go. I, I, I don't see how uh, a compromise can be reached, but you never know. I, Senator Wicker, who um, is the ranking senior Republican on armed services, uh, says he, he agrees with Tupperville as far as the policy, but not necessarily um, you know, the, the taxes he's taking and is hoping that this can be resolved. Uh, well, and it's more complicated, right, because Republicans are saying this is a violation of the Hyde Amendment where no federal dollars can go for abortions. The department is making it clear we are not paying for the procedure. We are merely, you know, helping get members to where they need to go, just like we would or something else that is unavailable uh, wherever a military member is stationed. Another medical procedure a military member uh, might require that is not immediately available. Exactly right. Um, let me uh, r- really quickly take you to AUMF, and we're going to have a conversation about the Iraq War uh, on this uh, 20th uh, anniversary Um Walk us through AUMF. What does it mean, and you know how it ties in more broadly to anything? Uh, and I want to get uh, a, a sense on Donald Trump. I'm going to bring Dove in here uh, in a minute to talk about the congressional stuff because we also had a whole series of hearings uh, as well from from senior leadership. But uh, go go ahead, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, give us give us your sense on AUMF and any hearing stuff that jumped out at you. Uh, and I'll bring uh, Dove in for the conversation about Donald Trump's indictment and what this means going forward. Sure. So we haven't talked about AUMF in a while, but there's been a lot of action in in the month month of March. I mean, on March eighth. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted by, in a bipartisan fashion to approve a bill to repeal both the 91 and 2002 uh, Iraq AUMFs. Uh, a week later, uh, Senate voted again on the floor of a strong bipartisan vote to advance the legislation. Uh, and a week after that, Schumer was able to file for closure. And then uh, earlier this week on March 29th, uh, the Senate uh, passed bipartisan legislation repealing the Iraq war authorization. The vote was 66 uh, to 30. Uh, strong message. But now it heads to the House, and the, and the, the future there is uncertain. Uh, so House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Mike McCall uh, came out saying that he's looking to use the repeal of the Iraq AUMFs as a chance to rewrite and modernize uh, the AUMF. He wants to give the president the authority to go after Iran proactively. And he actually said that, he, in his opinion, this is frankly a sign of weakness to Iran to be going down to do, be doing this without any sort of replacement. So he, he's in favor of the repeal as long as there's a replacement and that it, it is updated. Now, this will be a very difficult task to accomplish because it require, again, negotiation with the Senate uh, as well as with the administration. But you know, supporters of the AMF repeal in the House are willing to give us a chance. We've mentioned previously that Tom Cole, who's a senior member of the House Appropriations Committee uh, and, one, and the sponsor of Young's version of the bill in the House, said, look, we've waited 20 years. Might as well give this a few more months to see if we can work this out. And of course, as we've mentioned in the past, another option is that this gets attached as an amendment to the NDAA, which will be much, much later in the year. I, I want to get to Dove in just a second. But but Michael, I've got to start uh, the Donald Trump uh, indictment question uh, with you. Obviously, a lot of the debate about whether this helps the president or, or uh, the former president or hurts him. Um, I think pretty much history has shown that it's actually damaged the prospects for Republicans consistently. So this notion of you know, him being above the law is uh, is is very problematic. And we've been looking and many 
uh, Republicans, including on this call, have been expecting um, that the you know the, the the next incident would help break the fever uh, and allow the party to be able to move away from Trump. There were a lot of hopes DeSantis was going to be that guy. He's polling much more weakly uh, than Trump was. It, you know, how does this affect the dynamic, the storylines, um, and you know how how does this play out over the next weeks and months? Because Republicans are making this as if it's a witch hunt against the president, former president, as opposed to a former president who just broke more laws than almost any other president ever, including for self dealing and a whole bunch of other things for which emoluments clause. I mean, it's it's a very very long list, and for somebody who wants everybody locked up. It's interesting when charges are brought against him and then the charge is he shouldn't be prosecuted. Well, look, I mean, this uh, indictment really fits into the narrative that Trump and his supporters have been pushing uh, that, you know, the, the federal government's against them. Tech companies don't like them. You know, banks don't espouse their values. The media is against them. First, the Department of Justice is the Department of Injustice. And look, I think this is viewed as the weakest of the three major investigations that are going on against them. And I think privately people were hoping that they wouldn't proceed with this one because the cases in Georgia are much stronger. And uh, in the federal cases that the special prosecutor is looking at are also uh, much stronger. Um, but you know, at the same time, I mean, Trump almost kind of double dog dared them to, to indict him. I mean, he's been publicly criticizing the Manhattan district attorney and uh, I think he called him an animal last week. And then he posted a picture of himself carrying a bat next to a picture of the of the DA. And, you know, he had this unhinged rally in, in Waco earlier this week where, you know, they played the song Justice for All, which is a song sung by you know, the choir of men imprisoned for the January 6th attack. And it was under intercut with Trump, you know, saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And Trump went on, you know, to repeat his false claims about the election being rigged and stolen. Uh, Ted Nugent was there deriding Zelensky as a homosexual weirdo. Uh, Trump was saying the biggest threat to our country is not Russia, China, or for another foreign adversary, but it's really Mitch McConnell, the Department of Injustice, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Chuck Schumer. You know, remember, this This also comes on the heels of him dining at home with a white supremacist, calling for the termination of the Constitution, embracing QAnon, uh, describing Vladimir Putin as, as a genius, you know, leveling racist attacks against Mitch McConnell's wife. Um you know, uh, so I, but at the same time, I think this gives, you know, some Republicans a chance to rally around. But we need to see what the charges are and what the indictment says. I mean, from what I understand, there's over 30 different uh, separate indictments. Uh, so we'll have to give this time and see how this plays out next week. But I think in the short run, this is something that the president and his people are going to take advantage of. And he's been raising money off it like crazy. Uh, March 30th is uh, 31st is the FEC deadline. And he's been sending out lots of uh, texts and, and email messages. Uh, but this is. You know, at a time where, you know, we were hoping to try and unite the country, uh, and I think Biden was elected as a uniter, this is something that's going to further divide us. Um, I uh, would point out that uh, the 30 some odd charges, maybe the individual payments uh, that were uh, made is, is some of the legal speculation about why there were so many counts, because they were, uh, you know, m multiple smaller payments made uh, in hush money. I, I think ultimately the words hush money, affair, porn star, and president of the United States should should not coincide. And I mean that in a bipartisan uh, way. Uh, Dove, uh, real quick, uh, weigh in on all of this because you think uh, first there's an elegant solution. Uh, 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 Taylor uh, Kale, uh, the, the long awaited uh, industrial base chief of the Pentagon got through uh, that way, which is, uh, which is great. 
you think there are a number of workarounds. Give us kind of a quick, uh, quick take, uh, uh, you know, put politically and budgetarily up on the hill and what we expect and how to get through the nomination crisis. And then I want to uh, get your sense on, on the entire Trump matter before we move on and, and bring Jim, Patrick, and have all the other discussions we have to have. Go ahead. Well, um, what they did was uh, there was a holdup on uh, Taylor Kale, actually on, on two candidates. Uh, she's the first to go through. Looks like the second one will as well. Uh, and what they did was they invoked cloture and they had the votes. Uh, and I think that uh, if they could get cloture for two Democratic civilian uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense appointees, they'll be, they ought to be able to get it uh, for uh, the military officers, probably combine them all into one vote. Um, Tuberville is, is embarrassing the other Republicans. I mean, after all said and done, whether they are isolationist or not, they, those who even are, uh, still believe in a very strong defense. They've made that clear. Uh, and so obviously it's exceedingly embarrassing when you have some 160 officers who can't get their jobs and, and this totally messes up the military. It's not really a partisan thing at all, as we know. It's Tuberville himself, who is not exactly the paragon of, of what people imagine a senator should be anyway. That's a whole other story. Um, but they could invoke cloture and get around it. And, and that would be the end of this one. And probably the sooner they do it right after the, the recess, uh, the better for, for them, uh, for the Republicans, as well as for the country. On Mr. Trump, uh, I, I tend to agree this, this was the weakest case. Uh, 30 counts is an awful lot of counts. Uh, they obviously must feel that they can get a conviction. Um, now, the question then becomes, what does Trump do? How does he continue to campaign? Yes, he can raise money. He sends out these notes that there'll be a 1,500 times match. Nobody knows who's actually matching this. It's a longstanding practice, by the way, not only by Mr. Trump, but by Democrats and other Republicans and so on. Doesn't really mean very much. Yes, he can mount up some money. But the real question is, how does he face up to the possibility of having to testify, or if he doesn't testify, what does that do to his chances of, of uh, conviction? Uh, it just seems to me that there's gonna be a lot going on in his head. He's never really faced this before. It, the country hasn't faced it, but neither has Donald Trump. Uh, and, and that's a, a big deal, I think. Um, certainly not since he's been president. He's had an image of himself. He calls himself president to this day. Uh, and so one just doesn't know how that'll affect him, how that'll affect his performance in the campaign. And then there's one other thing, and that's the independents. The independents are the largest political group in this country. The problem for the Democrats in general, but particularly for Mr. Biden, is that his standing with independents is really low. It's in the below 25% right now, as I understand it, which doesn't help him. And so now you've got independents who are looking at Mr. Trump on the one hand and possibly Biden on the other, and you just don't know what the turnout's gonna look like. And by and large, lower turnout helped Republicans. So this thing is very much up in the air. Uh, and part of it, I think, is gonna be pressure on Biden who thinks he can beat Trump uh, as to whether he really should run again. And although he keeps dropping the heaviest of hints and there are the rumors and so on, hasn't happened yet. 
And as we, as I remember from uh, when I was a kid and Lyndon Johnson surprised everybody by saying he wasn't going to run again, surprises still happen. Uh, indeed. And I should say Laura uh, Taylor Kale uh, was confirmed uh, 63 uh, to uh, 27 uh, for uh, the job of the assistant uh, secretary of defense uh, for industrial base uh, and manufacturing policy. Um uh, so just point that out. And it, it's been nearly a year uh, that she's been right. waiting for for that right. confirmation, which which I think and, is uh, and awful. And that's precisely my point that, you know, fundamentally supporting the uh, military promotions is uh, is a bipartisan matter. And so I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if they invoke cloture. And, and frankly, the, the officers got more than 70 or 75 votes. Jim is going to be joining us uh, in a couple of minutes. Unfortunately, he's running late because he is in uh, Paris as he joins us. So we're going to go uh, to the Asia Pacific part of the conversation first. Uh, Patrick, uh, thanks for uh, being very patient. A very, very busy week in Asia uh, as we uh, have seen uh, Tsai Ing-wen visiting the United States. I should point out uh, that she uh, her visit was low-key, specifically not uh, to provoke uh, Beijing. Not that that uh, was going to work, but that uh, one of the few uh, events that she did was uh, a dinner that uh, you hosted, uh, in fact, uh, in, in uh, New York City. Uh, give us a sense on the importance of this trip, uh, the symbolism of it, and, and what uh, is trying to be accomplished at a time when uh, Taiwan's former president uh, visited Beijing uh, obviously, uh, you know, leader of, uh, you know, a, a KMT, a Kuomintang uh, leader. Walk us through the dynamic uh, that we're seeing as there is increasing concern that as China's economic situation gets worse, these tensions keep rising, the Chinese uh, and, and the Chinese get ever more muscular that there could be a misunderstanding. Uh, and indeed, the very war everybody wants to avoid could break out. Walk us through the dynamic we're seeing. Well, Vago, yeah, I'm certainly old enough to know that uh, Taiwan used to be front and center every day in, in U.S.-Asia policy, and then it dropped off the map to some extent, and, and at some point, uh, China also made it a lower-level issue, but it's been back with a vengeance now for a number of years, and indeed, since um, Tsai Ing-wen's first inauguration in uh, May of 2016, and I was there, she gave a speech that reportedly was cleared actually by, uh, not cleared, but shown to the Communist Party in, in China in advance to see if they had any reactions. And they seem, seemingly um, gave it an okay. But in reality, uh, ever since then, there was no honeymoon and it's been all uh, harassment and coercion. Uh, they did not like the fact that she would not abide by the so-called 1992 consensus, which was a, an understanding across the strait that both sides were part of China would work toward unification. She wanted to leave more options open, even while she was a very disciplined, loyally uh, kind of approach uh, and framework. And that was a, a moderate approach, especially for a representative of the Democratic Progressive Party, not the Nationalists, not the KMT. Um, in, in Ma Ying-jeou, her predecessor, who struck more than uh, 18 agreements across the strait, uh, when he was in office, uh, is in, as you say, in China uh, for an extended stay. Um, in fact, one mirroring the length of Tsai Ing-wen's 10-day visit to the Americas. Uh, and so um, Tsai Ing-wen is in, uh, just left, leaving New York today for Guatemala and then Belize, two of the remaining 
diplomatic representatives in uh, Latin America, Paraguay is another where there's a lot of pressure from China to be bought off the way they've just uh, nipped away uh, Honduras. Um, and then she'll be going through uh, California on the way out, and there there could be some uh, further uh, political tension uh, because of a, an expected discussion meeting with Speaker McCarthy. Last night at the Intercontinental Hotel in New York City, a great, a great uh, presentation. I mean, she, there were no officials there other than, say, Laura Rosenberger, who's not an official anymore in her capacity as chair of the American Institute in Taiwan, although she had just left the NSC. Um, and um, there were no members of Congress, but it was a very distinguished crowd, uh, more than 200 Hudson invitees, a delegation of about 84 from her entourage, President Tsai's entourage on the plane from, from Taiwan. They'd met with their own permanent representatives uh, uh, who, who re recognized Taiwan at the UN that day. It had been a low-key event. There were a few protesters with PRC flags outside who were paid a check uh, by the United Front to be there and, and really barely noticed, but just enough to get in a, a photo. Um, and her speech was uplifting. Uh, it was all about how we have to stand up for democracy and against bullies. Um, we have to uh, uh, be awakened as well by the Ukraine uh, invasion from Russia. Um, and uh, it was optimistic. It was even humorous at times. Um, she sat down with uh, John Walters, the uh, president and CEO of Hudson afterward, and answered about five or six questions that he threw at her. Uh, and it was a really engaging conversation. It was a side of her I've never seen uh, in Taiwan, where she's known to be such a stoic figure, and yet here she was uh, very much engaging. So uh, I think she won over the audience uh, in so many ways. Um, I can say more later, but uh, really a, a very powerful presentation about democracy, about uh, economic strength, about uh, gray zone uh, tactics from China, uh, about the need ultimately, and this is the bottom line on the defense side, for the like-minded states, starting with the United States, to pose such a cost to China that they won't think about uh, aggression. She said that she, you know Xi Jinping wants a, a victory without fighting, um, and um, we have to make sure that uh, he knows that there'll be a huge price to pay if he goes toward aggression. So this was a very good sign uh, as she goes on to Central America, and then we'll have to see whether China has a harsh reaction uh, after the California exit. Um, let's remember that before Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan last year, uh, they the Chinese had really been stepping up and escalating the military tensions. Now, they've just flown a number of planes uh, through uh, the air defense identification zone of Taiwan this week, but they really haven't built up the military uh, escalation the way they had before the Pelosi visit. So one expects this could be a lower key uh, China reaction, also because that's the line coming out of Beijing at the moment. Uh, you just saw Japan and China actually connect a hotline. Uh, this has been an on and off again proposition. And Foreign Minister Hayashi will be going to Beijing this weekend. He's also going to be hosting uh, Secretary Blinken and the other G7 foreign ministers in mid-April. And the expectation is that Secretary Blinken may go to China, provided the situation is good, to try to get that China-U.S. relationship some kind of stability as well. Um, let me, uh, you, you know, we said we, we you said we we don't really know uh, how the Chinese are going to respond. Although, right, if we look back at Pelosi's visit, uh, pretty aggressively, um, 
Let me take you to a couple of other uh, high points of the week, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of activity. We have Britain as part of the new, uh, the the successor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, or the evolution of that agreement uh, with uh, the UK trying to pay, play a larger Asia-Pacific role. Obviously, an AUKUS uh, partner uh, was in the headlines for that um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we had Kurt Campbell take a swing uh, through uh, the region and the Secretary of State uh, has conducted uh, the the this year's democracy uh, summit. Uh, oh, and by the way, the Japanese continue to uh, exercise with uh, Korea, signing more agreements. Right? I mean, there's a lot of activity. Give us kind of a quick sweep in the region and what some of the uh, takeaways were from from your perspective. And I commend everybody to check out CNAS's uh, conversation. Uh, Richard Fontaine of CNAS. Uh, had a terrific conversation uh, with uh, Kurt, obviously Kurt, one of the founders uh, of the think tank. And I suggest people uh, really tune in because it was a it was a typically thoughtful uh, and articulate discussion uh, on on by by both. But uh, go ahead, Patrick. Sure. Just on that point, I mean, I was able to catch uh, from New York even online some of Kurt's discussion with Richard and uh, response to a question asked uh, online uh, of Kurt during that uh, excellent discussion with Richard Fontaine, um, asked about Taiwan policy, Kurt Campbell made it very clear that the administration is dead set on preserving the status quo. And so last night, it was very interesting to hear uh, Tsai Ing-wen, President Tsai, say, by the way, We've been the responsible cross-strait stakeholder, a reference to that famous Bob Zellick line that we need China to be a responsible stakeholder back in uh, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and she was referring to the fact that China has been uh, using missiles and harassment with aircraft and ships and maritime militia to harass them. So it, it was a very much in sync between U.S. and Taiwan policy on this. Um, you know, Kurt did just get back from the South Pacific and New Zealand. It was, a, I think, a successful trip, a very well-timed visit because um, U.S. really has been trying to step up its approach and support in the South Pacific and Pacific Islands um, and uh, made some headway even in the Solomon Islands, which is tilted heavily toward being bought out by China. Um, but a critical, uh, important uh, part of diplomacy in New Zealand as well, um, not to be neglected as a, as a critical player, especially in the cyber world, but also in the South Pacific. Um, I think the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, as that uh, trade agreement is now called, uh, the fact that the United Kingdom is heading toward uh, you know, official membership now makes it possible for the United States to pivot, uh, frankly, and to uh, once again seek membership. Now, I'm not saying the administration is prepared to do this now, um, but there is no more important um, single task that could transform our, our uh, sort of the perception of the United States in the Indo-Pacific than trying to join that kind of uh, trade agreement. It would give real heft to everything else that we've done on the military and security side. Um, and while that may not happen, and while there may be still lack the political support uh, in the heartland and elsewhere, including both political parties to some extent, um, I think there's a, a growing recognition that this should happen. Um, I, uh, the, um, I think the, the question about um, Japan, um, very important in terms of what they've been doing with Korea, despite the fact that there was some uh, another typical tiff over, uh, over history books, and I don't want to trivialize history, but you can't fix everything uh, at, in one fell swoop, and that's going to take time. Um, the reality is the relationship is still moving forward, even as uh, South Korea has a new national security advisor. They've had to elevate um, Ambassador Cho 
Taeyong, who's been a successful diplomat and very trusted uh, hand, is going to move to be national security advisor on the eve of uh, President Yoon's visit to Washington next month, including uh, an address to Congress. Uh, he's been invited to do so, according to reports. So um, that's that's important. The current national security advisor, who's an old friend, is going back to Korea University. Um, it's not clear why he stepped down. There's some. There's more to it than is being reported so far, but nonetheless. Uh, a change here less than one year into the UN administration. Um, but it's not going to stop South Korea and Japan and others moving forward. Um, and I think uh, it's just very impressive to see the kind of uh, level of uh, networking that's going on among U.S. allies and partners throughout the region. Indeed uh, in, in it is. Uh, a quick reminder uh, to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by JJ Gertler and me. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. I want to sort of go to the Europe part of the conversation, which because of the war uh, has tended uh, to to lead uh, the show. Uh, First, walk us through, and I want to get everybody's sense, whenever Russia uh, has some setback, it does something extravagant like I'm going to uh, post uh, tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus uh, right up against uh, NATO territory and then abducts a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter, uh, you know, accusing him of uh, espionage. Uh, And, you know, if you're sort of getting your butt kicked every day, you're not getting access to as many weapons as you want. uh, And and you're just keep sending people into the meat grinder. I suppose that's another lever you can pull as Ukraine prepares uh, an offensive of its own. How how does Washington need to, you know, and then on top of that is this suggestion that we had over the course of the week that we may not be that we we may not be operating our reconnaissance aircraft as far forward uh, as we need to in in the wake of the Russian collision uh, with uh, the the Reaper. Walk us through how Washington needs to be responding to all of this at a very important uh, time. Uh, And then I also want to talk about sort of the newest and latest hiccup in, in, in Franco-German relations, which tend to be consequential given that those are sort of continental Europe's uh, biggest uh, and most important powers. Well, uh, thanks so much, uh, Vago. I, I think the top priority for Washington has got to be getting the material to Ukraine, getting the training done, really accelerating that so we can, so that they are ready to do this uh, spring offensive or early summer, whenever it's going to kick off. It's, it seems that, that, a, that a lot of commentators who know what they're talking about are saying that this uh, Russian effort, however you define it, that we've seen for the past couple of weeks, you know, some type of spring offensive that they are starting, uh, shaping the battlefield, whatever they seem to be doing, uh, but it's not having an effect except to, to uh, grind down their forces, and they're causing a lot of Ukraine casualties too. Um, but it looks like that's beginning to, to waver, and uh, this might be the time when Ukraine is going to have to kick off before they lose a lot of particularly highly trained forces that might be in that mix. Um, you know, there's, there's trained forces coming out of the UK, uh, out of uh, Grafenvir in Germany, uh, into Ukraine now, but there's also some on the front lines and they're becoming victims as well to this, this meat grinder. So t- 
time is accelerating. Uh, we're going to have to help them kick this thing off. And that means giving them the ammunition particularly, but uh, the tanker trucks that we saw in the last edition of assistance. Uh, I've seen video now of Challengers going in, of Leopard 2s going in. I've seen the uh, souped up M113s and Striker, uh, as well as the Bradleys. So they're they're arriving now. They're, they're getting online now. They're being trained. They're being driven by trained uh, uh Operators, so um, we're getting to the point now where we have got to uh, to uh, give them twice of what they need because when you're on the offensive, as you know, you never have enough. So that's got to be the top priority. I, and I think in terms of Belarus and the nukes, uh, you know, we've seen this movie before with with Putin. Um, that's no big surprise. He's just he's run out of a lot of things in his nuclear cupboard to shake uh, at us. You know, in terms of a nuclear threat. Um, but that, frankly, that doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't scare me. And we have to make sure that the American people and the European people, the West, uh, don't take a take a look askance at that and get worried about uh, nukes in Belarus. That is not something that should uh, slow us down. Um, and as far as the Wall Street Journal uh, 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 reporter being taken, that I, that's a we've seen that too, as you know, happen in the past. And this was a target of opportunity. And it's going to be something that the U.S. is going to have to be working behind the scenes uh, at, a, at a time when uh, things were much worse than we were working similar issues like this, uh, you know, a year ago. It's, it's gotten worse now. And I'm, that my heart goes out to the family. And uh, let's see what, what, what we can do. But, um, but anyway, top priority. We got to help the Ukrainians kick off this offensive that they're going to take in the spring. Dove, I want to uh, bring you in this, into this uh, in, in a moment because I know you followed it, but we, uh, you know, as we've been talking on this program extensively, uh, Turkey and Hungary are allowing Finland in and blocking uh, Sweden. Uh, there's a lot of frustration with this. Both of those are, are NATO members uh, and one of them is a NATO member and an EU uh, member uh, who is targeting a nation for, for which there is universal support. Uh, this would have been a much more effective message had both Sweden and Finland both been permitted in. And yet Ankara and Budapest are two nations that are consistently uh, 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 skirting U.S. and EU sanctions. In fact, Budapest uh, is now the conduit for bribes to European politicians. Marine Le Pen, uh, one of them, as Emmanuel Macron becomes more unpopular, the more confident Le Pen becomes that she will uh, succeed him in office, which would be very problematic. You know, Jim, let me start off with you. I mean, is there any leverage that NATO and the EU can use on these countries to get Sweden in? Or, you know, frankly, why not impose the sanctions that both of these guys are, are violating? I mean, how is that even permitted to happen? And Dove, I want to bring you in because I know you've got strong thoughts on this as well. Jim and then Dove. Well, I, I'm not sure there's a lot of leverage, uh, even on a good day, in terms of NATO uh, strong arming an ally to do something that its leadership feels is not in their interest. And Erdogan is a stubborn guy. He's got uh, big things on the line, and he's not going to be pushed around, particularly by Europeans. Uh, but I think I think what we're going to see, though, is now that uh, he's relented on Finland, of course, it, it's, it's, it gives Erdogan his, uh, I guess he takes pleasure in uh, tweaking the Swedes even more because it isolates Sweden and it puts them in the, in the spotlight and and um, makes it even more awkward for Stockholm. And I'm sure Erdogan takes great pleasure in that. So I think really it's, it's still letting Erdogan work through this electoral process he's in. 
Uh, he, uh, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm certain Sweden is going to come in. Uh, and I'm hopeful that it'll happen in time for the NATO summit. Uh, but, it, but really, with Turkey, the more you try to put the screws on them, the, the more they dig in. It just doesn't work that way. And as far as Hungary is concerned, I, you know, I think there's, again, there's not a whole lot of leverage with, with Hungary either, but I think they're going to be a little more, a little easier to work with on this. And I'm not so worried about Hungary, but it's, but with Turkey, there's not much more we're going to be able to do, but really hold Erdogan to the point that once he gets what he needs, he's got to cut the deal. Uh, that's the expectation. And that is, and that if he doesn't, he's going to, he's going to throw the alliance into a crisis, which is not something he wants. So, so I think we're just going to have to grit our teeth uh, and and work through this, and and that's uh, there's uh, there's no other way to do it without it without making things worse. Dove, well, uh, the Hungarians finally kept their word and and let Finland in, and the reason they did is because I think is because the uh, there was a Turkish delegation that had been going around not long before the fin the Hungarian vote and said that they were going to let Finland in, and uh, Orban had always said he wasn't going to be the last one. Uh, to uh, Sweden and Finland out. So Finland's in, and, and quite frankly, um, given the close Finnish uh, military ties with Sweden, uh, the long Finnish border, uh, the fact that Sweden is now surrounded by NATO allies, the Swedes can hold off a little bit, I think, because uh, it's pretty reassuring when everybody around you is, is basically intertwined with your military and part of NATO. Uh, but the thing about Turkey is that Erdogan is up for election in May. Uh, right now, he's losing in the polls. He's down perhaps as much as 55-45 to Kemal uh, Daroglu, who is the uh, who somehow managed uh, to put together a, a coalition of about six parties, including, it looks like, the Kurds as well, uh, the Turkish Kurds, uh, which should give him the majority. So... In fact, some people are speculating that the problem is going to be that he gets elected president, uh, but the parliament still goes with the Erdogan party. Nevertheless, he's got a lot of power if he's president and, you know, things would change and I, the Swedes would get in. If Erdogan is reelected, that, too, may make a difference because uh, once he's in, uh, he doesn't have to bash Europe as much. His basic argument against Sweden now is not that the the Swedes are, are doing anything uh, worse than, than the Finns were with respect to turning Kurds over to Turkey. It's that the, Swins have, the Swedes have said nasty things about Turkey and about him, uh, which makes it a lot easier, actually, to climb down when, when you're ready to climb down. So I'm, I'm with Jim on this. I think it'll happen. Uh, we don't have much leverage now. I think we'll have a lot more leverage. We won't, might not even need it if Erdogan loses in May. And even if he wins, I think uh, the situation will be quite different. Um, we've got a couple of minutes uh, left, and I want to uh, go uh, quickly ar around the horn. And Dove, uh, we can uh, end uh, on uh, Israel, but I want to ask about uh, the Iraq uh, war. You were uh, part of the Bush administration. Uh, indeed, you were one of the Vulcans uh, who were part of the core national security team uh, around uh, Governor Bush, candidate Bush, uh, and then President Bush when he when he took office, and you're somebody who has also become quite critical uh, of the war, its execution, uh, and its and its uh, aftermath. Two arguments that can be made. Uh, first, uh, you know, it's all very nice in hindsight, but everybody believed he had a nuclear program 
at the time we actually went in. So um, that part of it, people can debate till the cows come home. But I think those who said go in because of that, who believed it because their intel told them that, uh, I think there's a legitimate argument to be made. The problem, I think, begins right after we go in. Uh, and here uh, I felt all along um, and wrote about it in my book afterward that we took up Afghanistan, uh, which cost us 20 years of war there. Uh, and we made the serious mistake of thinking that we can rebuild build nations with a bunch of 18 to 20 year old uh, military kids who joined the military for very different reasons. And it really all went downhill. It was mismanaged. And then, of course, uh, we pulled out when by announcing it and thereby making it a lot easier for uh, Maliki, Nuri al-Maliki, to create his own private army, go after the Sunnis, create ISIS, and then we come back in. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. And it, and it was a disaster because at the very beginning, we did not have the kind of temporary leadership, American leadership in Iraq that could have stabilized things. Uh, instead, we made some serious mistakes at the outset, uh, disbanding the army, thinking that anybody who was a Ba'ath member was therefore evil, when the only way you could do anything in Iraq was to be a Ba'ath member. Those kinds of mistakes just led us into this horrible nightmare that that uh, finally ended uh, in a mess as well. And and frankly, we're not entirely out. And let's be honest, we've, we still have some something under a thousand folks there because we still have to deal with pockets of ISIS. Uh, I was just out there in Kurdistan. Everybody is deeply concerned. Uh, uh, on the one hand, it's pretty obvious that the Iranians are practically running the country. But on the other hand, uh, without the American presence, uh, who knows where ISIS would be? So they want us there, the Iraqis do. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the Iranians have penetrated uh, far beyond anything we imagined they could do. Michael, uh, you've got to jump in a minute, and indeed we have to wrap the program up, uh, but you uh, have been a lobbyist for decades uh, and were watching uh, the war and tracking those sentiments and having members, uh, conversations with members. Your sense on what sort of the takeaways and the lessons after 20 years were, and Jim, I want to get your sense on this as well as somebody who had to work both Afghanistan and Iraq policy the entire time, uh, entire eight years uh, that you were uh, in uh, the Obama uh, administration. Go, go ahead, Michael, and then Jim. Well, you're right. I uh, I was a lobbyist during the second Iraq war, but we remember there was the, the first one back in 1991. And that was also one of the AUMFs that was just repealed. And I was uh, working in the Pentagon at the time uh, for George H.W. Bush. And I think you know, there are some very clear lessons that we can take away from both those conflicts. In the first conflict, we went in, uh, one, you know, with the mentality that, you know, war is a terrible, ugly thing, and it should be our last resort to fight it. But if we have to fight it, we got to fight it to win it. And if we're going to fight it, we're going to have clear objectives. And that conflict, we had three clear objectives. One was to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Two was to restore Kuwait's legitimate government. And three was to restore peace and stability to the region. Once those objectives were met, we were done. And that's why the ground war ended on day three and we withdrew our, our troops and we, and we came home. And the second time around, there was way too much bravado uh, and you know, lessons of our history and our, our world history and other conflicts were not learned. And we, were, we treated it as we're going to go in being treated as liberate, liberators. We didn't think about the tribalism between the, the Shiites and the Sunnis and the Kurds. 
and um, without clear objectives and, uh, and also going in without the, the necessary troop levels and resources behind it, we ended up in a quagmire that will affect us for decades to come. Jim? Well, Vago, I, I, you know, it wasn't just the Obama administration I was involved. I was involved with this from the very first day. So frankly, I've, I've been dragged through the whole, the whole thing, uh, having to get the allies engaged and, uh, and doing all that. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm still processing it all, frankly. I mean, I'm having to teach this over here at Sciences Po, and, um, and it's very difficult. Uh, and I think right now I'm just going to say uh, there's a lot that I agree with with, with what Michael just said uh, and, and Dub too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little more of a harsh critic, and I think um, you, we don't have enough time to go through the whole, the, the, both those wars and the ins and outs. Uh, all I can say is that I'm glad we're out of it, and I sure hope that we are learning lessons from it. Uh, and that's one of the things I'm doing as I teach over here is trying to review all of this with these young people and saying, you know, um, you, you've got to be smart when you go into these problems. That things never turn out the way you think they're going to. And here's some examples. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, uh, in, in, indeed. And uh, I remember just as a reporter who was covering this, uh, the extreme concern uh, after 9-11. I mean, I'm not acting as an apologist, but, um, uh, you know, the, the palpable sense we missed 9-11 and even very senior Democratic leaders were telling me he's got WMD. This is a dangerous thing. Uh, right. I mean, I mean, President Clinton, uh, former President Clinton fell in that category. Um, you know, Bill Cohen was expressing concerns uh, as 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 well. And a number of other folks uh, uh, were worried. I mean, the question, I think, for many people was the way that it was executed ultimately uh, and whether it was being executed to succeed very quickly. Right. Uh, Dove, go ahead if you have one last point, and I need to get you very quickly because we do have to wrap the show. I need to, to get your take on Israel and whether Bibi's uh, strategy of sort of using dividing American politics is going to help him get off the hook. But go ahead. Well, just very quickly, I think what you just said is the key. There, were, there was bipartisan concern after 9-11. There was an effort to somehow link Saddam Hussein to al-Qaeda. It was nuts, but there were people who pushed it. And so in that atmosphere, it was a lot easier for those who, for a variety of reasons, wanted to go into Iraq uh, to make their case. Um, but as, as you rightly said, it was in the execution. We've all said that. And the real question is, do we actually learn lessons? Because strictly speaking, uh, if you look at what, how we got out of Afghanistan and how we got out of Vietnam, it looks like we yeah, didn't learn. Absolutely. Uh, uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, Dove, is uh, what's next and is BB's strategy of, uh, of uh, sort of uh, pitting American uh, lawmakers against the president as he did uh, with Obama, um, uh, you know, and, you know, has, has uh, I think, tried to do it with uh, Biden. Uh, going to succeed in in the in the wake of this, and you wrote a very thoughtful editorial that ran in the Hill today, uh, that uh, you know kind of give the audience a summary of that as well. Well, sure. I mean, because it's all part of the same. Uh, look, this is his, was his strategy, as you said, against Obama, but it was different because he was arguing with Obama over uh, the uh, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, and that's a was one that people could disagree about. Uh, now he's arguing with Biden over whether he should just 
go ahead and do what he damn pleases inside Israel and tell the United States to butt out, even though they still depend on billions of our dollars. Uh, and my what I wrote today was just a, an element of it. There's this ultra right winger named uh, Itamar Ben Gvir, who uh, has is actually a convicted criminal uh, who uh, is in charge right now of the border police. But that's not enough because the Supreme Court, which he hates, uh, said that he didn't have operational control and he has threatened to leave the government without which Netanyahu uh, has no majority unless uh, all of what the most extreme opponents of the Supreme Court gets voted through. Now, Netanyahu is trying to keep him. And so he's promised uh, to give him, create a new National Guard. Uh, and that will become his private army. And of course, uh, maybe it's because I was comptroller, but I know very well that money is fungible. And if we give money to the military, it could wind up in the National Guard. And I think we have to take a very hard line with them and say, you do something like that, you're jeopardizing our assistance to your military. Uh, and I think that because this is now the issue, uh, Netanyahu's tactic of, of playing up the Republicans against, frankly, not just Biden, but the Democrats is not going to work. Uh, yes, the Republicans will protest, but the issue is just so different where Israel is really going to be walking away from being the democracy it's been. That's very different from fighting over whether you like or dislike the Iranian deal. Uh, it's going to blow up in his face. I'm convinced of that. And, and I would point out that uh, Netanyahu's disagreement started with the first visit to the White House where he lectured uh, President Obama after President Obama said we should have a two state solution. So it actually started, yeah. uh, you know, it, I mean, that, it, that was it started was way made, before JCPOA started. Right. And that may even have been more outrageous when you think about it, because I remember feeling I didn't agree with very much of what Mr. Obama did. But I felt it was literally outrageous for a foreign leader to come and lecture my president in my White House because it's the people's White House. And indeed, I would point out, Dov, uh, that uh, Netanyahu's uh, problem was with uh, the president uh, talking about uh, a two-state uh, uh, solution uh, and uh, pushing back on that. And then a couple of days later, there was a massive bipartisan vote uh, against the American president uh, and for Bibi Netanyahu, something uh, which has a tendency of unfortunately only reinforcing uh, bad uh, behavior. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, a pleasure as always. Have a great weekend, a great week, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.